thoughts. Let's seek God's help as we come to his word. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you speak to us through your word. We ask now that you would help us to understand what this passage says and what it means to us. Give us soft hearts that would receive the spiritual food you have for us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, building the first bridge across the Niagara River was a massive challenge. The river rushes towards the famous waterfalls with terrifying speed. You could not just row across it. So creating a bridge between the two banks, 800 feet apart, across a gorge that was more than 200 feet deep, was quite a challenge in the 19th century. The supervisor of the project had the bright idea of a kite-flying competition uh, with the reward of $5, which was a small fortune at the time. The idea was to see who could fly a kite across the gorge without breaking the kite string. Uh, And a few days into the contest, a a young 16-year-old boy named Homan Walsh managed to do it. He managed to fly his kite from the Canadian side of the river to the American. Uh, The kite string was tied to several trees and used as a pilot line to stretch across a stronger rope. That, in turn, was used to stretch a thicker cable across and so on and so forth. And from that, the bridge was built. It was a grand project and the finished article was an imposing structure. And yet Homan Walsh was just a young boy with a kite. Now, you may wonder what all that got to do with our passage this morning in Genesis 9 and 10. Well, amongst all the the names uh, and the places, there is a thread running. And in fact, it is the thread that is running through the entire book of Genesis and the entire Bible. God is doing something big. And he invites us to join in. He invites us to play our part, however small or insignificant that may feel however feeble we might think we are. Uh, And this passage, believe it or not, like so many in the Bible, shows us exactly what God is doing. It shows us that in the midst of a broken and rebellious world, God is preserving a people who will show the world his glory. That is God's grand project. That has been God's grand project throughout the history of this world. And he invites us to join in. And I believe that that message is one that we, the church, in these days, in this situation, needs to hear and to get to grips with. We need to hear and accept God's invitation to get involved with what he is doing, especially so in in these strange and uncertain times. And so there are three fundamental realities that this passage presents us with. Number one, sin is pervasive. It's often been said that there is more that unites us than divides us. Uh, indeed, that phrase was used by the late MP Joe Cox when she made her, uh, her maiden speech to Parliament. Of course, Joe Cox was later murdered by a man who believed the exact opposite to be true. But the reality is that as a human race, we are both more united than we often realise but at the same time more divided than we care to believe. And this passage shows us just that. It reveals that we are both united and divided. 
We'll see the division played out a little later on, but the first striking thing that we notice in our passage is the unity of the human race. Look at chapter 9, verse 18. We read that the sons of Noah, and they came out of the ark, just them, just them and their wives. Uh, and verse 19 specifically tells us that it was from these three sons that came all of the people who scattered over the whole earth. So we can say with confidence that every single human being on this planet can trace our history back to one of Noah's sons. We share a common DNA, regardless of our nationality, our language, or our skin color, we are more united than we realize. But there is another thing that unites us, and it is sin. Every single human being has a sinful nature. We saw how that came about in chapter 3. We saw the terrible consequence of it in chapter 5. We saw God's judgment upon a sinful world as he flooded the earth and how he spared Noah and his family in order that they might step out into a new, uh, renewed world. But this new world that Noah and his family now inhabit is still a fallen world. And we know that only too well today. Noah and his family are still fallen people. Humanity is united not only by DNA, but by sinful nature. We've been astonished, haven't we, over recent weeks, as we've seen how quickly this coronavirus has spread, how it has infected people, how susceptible we all are. We've been staggered at the prospect that maybe 70 or 80% of people will be infected with it, even with a mild dose. But let me tell you this, if, and if you're watching this and you're not yet a Christian, you need to hear this, let me tell you that sin is a disease that affects 100% of the human race. And there is no such thing as a mild dose. If you are a human being, and I assume you are, you are infected with a sinful nature. But there is good news. Because we know that there was one man, the, the God-man, Jesus Christ, who is not sinful. And yet he became sin as he died for sinners like us. Well, Noah, like every other human, was infected by the disease of sin. I don't know about you, but it, when I watch a film or a TV series, I quite like a happy ending. I really feel quite cheated if I get to the end of it and it, it's not what I'd hoped for. If it doesn't work out well, I, I kind of get to the end and, and I say to Beth, well, what, what was the point of us wasting our time watching that? Well, those who like happy endings would probably have ended this first section of Genesis at chapter 9, verse 17. But Moses, who wrote this book down, well, he doesn't do that. This this passage today is the beginning of the end of this first section of Genesis. Moses is a little bit like the preacher who says, and finally, and then goes on for another 20 minutes. But he's bringing us to the climax of these first 11 chapters. And this, this last little bit that we're going to be looking at today and next Sunday, this last bit is not a happy ending to this first section of Genesis. Time and again, we find in the Bible that God does not hide the faults and the imperfections of even the holiest of his heroes. Noah, remember, was the most righteous man of his generation. And he steps out into God's new world, and yet he is still a sinner. And he brings shame upon himself. He plants a vineyard. 
and he drinks its wine. Now, there are some who have tried to whitewash over Noah's sin by saying, well, he, did, he, he just didn't know what happened when grapes fermented. It, this must have been an accident. Uh, just think for a moment and do some uh, simple maths. Noah didn't have any grandsons when he came out of the ark. Uh, and yet by the time this event happens, he's got several because Canaan is obviously already born. So by this point, Noah is pretty experienced. He knows what wine is and he knows what wine does. This is no accident. This is sin. His drinking gets out of control. He is so utterly inebriated that he stripped himself naked and passed out in his tent. Even this early on in the Bible's message, we're given a, a stark warning about the danger of alcohol abuse. It's so often the starting point for all kinds of other sin and debauchery. Just as Noah did, we find that it leads us to shame ourselves. Sin is pervasive. It's invaded even Noah's heart. And it leads to shame. And here we have played out in front of us a stark, stark warning that we are to take action to cut sin out of our lives. Kill sin before it kills us. There was uh, once a man who wanted to sell his house. Another man wanted to buy it, but he couldn't afford the asking price. So after much bargaining between the two, the owner agreed to sell the house for half of its value. With one stipulation, the buyer would own the whole house apart from one single nail protruding from above the front door just inside the hallway. After several years, the original owner wanted the house back, but the new owner refused to sell. So the first man went out and he found a carcass of a dead fox and he hung it on the nail that he still owned. Very soon the house was unlivable and the new owner was forced to move out and sell it for next to nothing. And the point is, do not leave Satan with a single nail in your life. The Bible is full of commands to flee from sin, to put off the things of the sinful nature. In other words, do not leave Satan with a single nail in our lives because who knows what he will come and hang on it. Sin has pervaded Noah's life. Uh, but it doesn't end there, of course. His son Ham sees his father naked in his tent and he goes and gossips about it with his brothers. Ham adds to his father's shame. There's a warning there too, isn't there? Don't gloat or glory in other people's sin. We have a horrible tendency to do that, don't we? You'll never guess what he's done. Oh, I cannot believe she said that. Don't gloat in other people's sin. But Shem and Japheth, the other two brothers, well, they act rather differently. They refuse to look on their father in his shameful state. Instead, they back in slowly, carrying a garment, and they cover him. It reminds us, perhaps, doesn't it, of how back in chapter 3, it was God that covered Adam and Eve. And here, Shem and Japheth do the same for their father. The result of it all was blessing. And there's cursing for Noah's descendants. Now, many have wondered why it is that it's Canaan, uh, Ham's youngest son, why it is why it's Canaan that is the one who is cursed when Ham was the one who sinned. Uh, many preachers and commentators take different views, but the one I find most compelling is this. Ham was not cursed 
because despite his own sin, he was a genuine believer like Noah. Look back at chapter 9 and verse 1. Ham was blessed by God. Noah, uh, God blessed Noah and his sons. And as I understand the Bible, you cannot curse one who is God's. Even back in chapter 3, Adam and Eve were themselves not cursed. The ground was cursed, the snake was cursed. Humans experienced the consequences of the curse, but Adam and Eve themselves were not cursed. In fact, they were blessed. There was blessing for them despite their sin. And so if Ham is a true believer, that would explain why he is not now cursed. But why Canaan? Well, following that kind of thinking, the most likely explanation is surely that Ham's other sons may well have been genuine believers as well, but Canaan isn't. He's an unbeliever. And as far as I can see from Scripture, it is unbelievers who are cursed. And the curse is a serious one. Canaan's descendants will be the lowest of slaves to their relatives. And of course, as the unfolding story of God's people takes shape, we, we see that is precisely what happened. Remember who it is that Moses is writing for. He's writing to the Israelites wandering in the wilderness. They've been delivered from Egypt. They're waiting to take possession of the promised land. The land of where? Canaan. They're about to fulfill this prophecy. And so this curse and blessing of Noah upon his descendants at the end of chapter 9 sets the scene for what unfolds in chapter 10. Chapter 10 explains Uh, how this blessing and this curse came about. Because as we read through that list of names, uh, that long list of of names and people groups and territories in chapter 10, we see how sin pervades the whole of humanity. The names and the nations, they just jump out at us, don't they, from that chapter. They're, They're like a who's who of the enemies of God's people. Maybe first and foremost among them, as we read through, did you did you notice Nimrod? The son of Cush. Nimrod is the first person that the Bible records as building up a kingdom. Where is his kingdom based? Babylon. We know how that turned out. But as we see the origins of the Babylonians and the Assyrians and the Egyptians and the other nations and peoples, we see how it is that that sin has pervaded and infected the entirety of the human race that springs from Noah and his sons. As nations are built up, They live in hostility towards one another. And more importantly, we see how sin, so utterly pervasive, has led people and nations and rulers to stand in rebellion against God. Sin is so pervasive. It infects 100% of human hearts. It has 100% mortality rates. Sin is pervasive. But second, the gospel is promised. The gospel is promised in Genesis 10, believe it or not. Now, if I were to promise you a thousand pounds the next time uh, I see you, uh, without interest, because we don't know when that would be, but if I was to promise you a thousand pounds the next time I see you, some of you might get a little excited. Others of you who know me a little well would know I don't have that cash to splash around. But when somebody makes a promise, we tend to make a judgment based on what we know about the trustworthiness of the person making the promise. Now, as Christians, we can and we must be 100% certain that when God makes a promise, it is never too good to be true, and we can believe it because the one who makes the promise is utterly trustworthy. And in Genesis 10, we see another glimpse of the gospel, the good news that God has promised. 
Uh, many people have asked the question that if God was so saddened by the rebellion in the world in Noah's day, why did he not just eradicate the entirety of the human race and be done with it? Why did he let another fallen man out of the ark into a new world just to ruin it all over again? Well, the answer comes back in chapter 3. Do you remember God had promised a serpent crusher, one of Eve's offspring? But that promise had not yet been fulfilled. Noah was not the answer. Noah was not the serpent crusher that God had promised. And that is why God kept the human race going. Because the time was not yet right to send his son, our Lord Jesus, into the world. We'll look at some of the other aspects of chapter 10 in just a moment. But for now, just look at verse 21. As the blessing to Shem unfolds at the end of the chapter. We're told specifically that Shem was the ancestor of all the sons of Eber. Now, Eber is just one of Shem's great-grandsons, and yet he is singled out at the beginning of Shem's family line. Why is that? Well, it's from the family of Eber that we later discover comes Abraham. And in fact, the word Eber is the root from which we get the word Hebrew. So Genesis 10 is all about leading us to Abraham. He's the next major character in the story. But even he's only a staging block. For the Israelites wandering in the wilderness, the Israelites whom Moses was leading and encouraging with these words, it would have been profoundly encouraging. What a blessing for them to to see how God had still been at work through all these families through the nations and the peoples of earth through history to get to their father Abraham and yet we know with greater insight that he is only a staging block he points us to Jesus and it's only in Jesus that God's good news is fully and finally revealed and Jesus is good news for all the world As we read Genesis 10 and we see a world so united in its sinfulness and yet so divided from each other and from the God who created them, what is the answer? Who is the answer? The answer is the serpent crusher, the death defeater, the life giver. The answer is Jesus, the one who is good news for all nations. And it is that gospel promise that is at the heart of the book of Genesis It's at the heart of chapter 10 that otherwise we might find strange and disruptive to the flow of the narrative. But God's point is this. He wants us to understand that the world has been so pervaded by sin, so divided by sin, and yet there is hope. There is good news. And it looks like Jesus. Sin is pervasive. But the gospel is promised. Thirdly, a remnant is preserved. Come with me back to the closing verses of chapter 9 again. Sorry that we're jumping around. But Noah not only prophesies a curse on Canaan, he speaks blessing over Shem and Japheth. Uh, Notice it's not Shem himself who is praised, it's Shem's God, the Lord whom Noah praises. But the blessing to Shem is that Canaan's offspring will become servants to his own descendants. And in chapter 10, we see this family tree which summarizes 
the descendants of Noah and his son. It's another carefully organized record that Moses has put together. What he's doing, as we've said, he's providing the link between Noah and Abraham. He's preparing us for the next section of the story, but it's not just a meaningless list of names. It shows us how humanity spreads out and fills the earth. Despite the pervasiveness of sin, God is still preserving a faithful remnant who will display to the world his glory. Because verses 2 to 5, you see the Japhethites are described. They spread out to the north, by the way, and they stretch out east and west from Europe to Asia. The descendants of these sons, these nations, are still found today. In fact, many of us in Western Europe would trace our ancestry back to Japheth's family. Verses 6 to 20, we have the descendants of Ham. They went to the south. They went into Africa and the Middle East. As we said, there's particular mention of Nimrod and Canaan. Obvious reasons for that, because from them came the two greatest enemies that God's people would encounter. Then in verses 21 to 29 come the descendants of Shem. We saw a moment ago how... Uh, The family of Eber is the most significant there as we see the unfolding promise of the gospel. So what then does chapter 10 show us? Well, it shows us a world that is filled with the human race, but a world that is not filled with the glory of God. A world that is divided into nations and tribes, separated by barriers of culture and language and ethnicity and geography. We're being showed a world filled with humans, divided in all sorts of ways, yet united in its rebellion against God. Nation after nation, people after people who live their own way, on their own terms. Nations who build up for themselves kingdoms and reputations. People who exchange what they have been taught about God for a lie. And yet in the middle of it all, what is God doing? They seem so insignificant may seem like a drop in the ocean compared to the vast numbers of people living in rebellion. But what is God doing? He's preserving a remnant. A people who will show the world his glory. Because there is this family line. This people who are being preserved as a faithful remnant. And we'll find out when we get to chapter 12 and God makes his covenant with Abraham that he and his offspring are blessed by God. They are blessed to be a blessing. They are preserved in order to show the world the immense, the spectacular glory of the true and living God. And yet that people, the Israelites, as we well know, they got the wrong idea, didn't they, about their identity and their purpose. They took such pride in being the people of God, they essentially put themselves in a museum for other people to see but not touch. A few weeks ago, as a family, we, we visited the Roald Dahl Museum over in uh, Great Missenden. Roald Dahl was famous for writing all of his books from his writing hut at the bottom of his garden. It was nothing more than a glorified shed. And after he died, the entire contents of that writing hut, including, including the ball and socket joint from his hip before it was replaced, the entire contents of that writing hut was transferred to the museum. And it's preserved, just as he left it. You can't touch it. It's behind glass, but it's preserved, just as he left it. Now, God does not call his people to be like that. God's remnant is not preserved to be a museum exhibition, but a living embodiment of God's glory. The people of Eber, Abraham's descendants, the Israelites, they became a museum exhibit. 
They shut the door instead of welcoming the nations in. That's what they were intended for. Now, it's very easy to miss, but even in Noah's blessing at the end of chapter 9, we have a glimpse of the worldwide scope of the gospel. God's good news. We've looked at the curse on Canaan. We've seen the blessing on Shem. What does Noah say to Japheth? Well, 927, look, may God extend Japheth's territory. He did that. His ancestors spread all over the world. Then what does he say? May Japheth live in the tents of Shem. That phrase, live in the tents of Shem, is a figure of speech. It means this. May he share in Shem's destiny. You see, the blessing that was for Shem was open to Japheth too. Who are the descendants of Japheth? Well, they became known as Gentiles. It includes most of us. And by Jesus' day, Jews had become so bitter towards the Gentiles, they were unclean, they were unwelcome. And yet, what had God said back in Genesis 9? There's a place for them too. They're welcome. All nations, all people are welcome through God's good news in Jesus Christ. That that is good news for you today. You are welcome in God's family if you will come to Jesus. And as Paul wrote many of his letters in the New Testament, that was a major theme. Gentiles, non-Jews are welcome too because God's gospel, Jesus Christ, the Son of God who died for sinners and was raised to life again, that gospel is good news for all the world. The remnant that God has been preserving all this time is not an ethnic group. It's a community of believers. It's us. And he invites us to be part of what he's doing in the world. What is he doing? He's preserving a remnant of people who will show the world his glory. That is our task. That is our joy at this moment in time. We have the immense privilege of figuring out what that is going to look like at this moment in our history, when everything we know has been disrupted. How are we going to show the world God's glory? If you go to London at night, not at the moment, obviously, but if you go to London at night and you walk around St. Paul's Cathedral, the building is beautifully lit up. You see it in all its glory. It's lit by dozens of powerful floodlights, but you do not spend your time admiring the lights. You look at what they're lighting. And at this moment in time, people cannot physically come to church. They cannot see the church visibly in the way they ordinarily would. But we are called to be those floodlights. We are not the focal point, but we are called to flood the world with the glory of our God. God is preserving a remnant. We're small. We're a minority. But he's preserving us in order that we might show the world his glory. And people in these days need to see the church becoming a different kind of church. The church is not closed. The building might be. But the church is not closed. We're still here. We're still active. We're still seeking to show the world the glory of our God. But how do we do that today? We're living in deeply troubling and uncertain times. What is for many of us uncharted territory? Many of us are isolated. We're cut off from face-to-face contact. We're deprived of worshipping together in this building. We're faced with months, perhaps, of not running our evangelistic programs and not being able to invite friends to things at church. 
And for many of us, it's a season of sadness and fear. But it's also an opportunity to be a different kind of church. So let's consider the words we'll say to people when we ring them up. Let's consider what we will share on social media. Let's point our people, let's point people to the glory of our sovereign and sufficient God. Let's be people of prayer. Whether it's here in the church building when it's open or, or whether it's in our homes if we're isolated. And let's be people of action. Powerful action. Let's be the hands and feet of our Lord Jesus in our communities in these days. May we, like him, be servants who show compassion and love in action. People who consider the needs of others before our own. Who selflessly serve those in need. Let us learn how to serve, for it is Christ we're serving. So to those who have this past week blessed, isolated people by picking up shopping for someone. Or phoning them. Or cooking them a meal. Or dropping off supplies here at the church to give to somebody vulnerable. Thank you. Listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 25. Matthew 25, 31. Jesus said this. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was ill and you came and looked after me. I was in prison and you came and visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you as a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you ill or in prison and go and visit you? And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Now is our time to be that kind of church. Blessed to be a blessing. Like the sons of Shem. Like the people of Eber. A remnant who will show the world God's glory. So let's get involved in what God is doing. And what God is doing in the world right now is very different to what we thought he was going to be doing. But he invites us to get involved. Showing his glory to all the world. In the words of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and what? Glorify your Father in heaven. Let's be the people God has called us to be because Jesus is good news for all nations. Sin is pervasive, but the gospel is promised and a remnant is preserved. God is preserving a people, us, who will show the world his glory. Let's get stuck in with his purposes for this time as we share with the world the love and glory of our servant king. Are you in? I hope so. Let's pray. Loving Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus, the one you promised long ago. Thank you that at just the right time he came into the world to save sinners like us. 
Thank you that he came as a servant, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life for us. Help us to follow him and to give our lives to sharing him in this world, in this moment in time.